Find a way to win in everything you do in the smallest things because excellence is a habit. And if you can do the right things enough times, just, just win and giving you the best I got today. Win and when I go to do the next thing I'm going to do, let's find a way to go one and oh, find a way to go one and oh. I believe that gets to be a habit. And if you win enough on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays, then Friday nights are not that big a deal. Welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Bailey Miles. The Building Excellence Podcast is all about sharing inspiring stories from some of the most successful athletes, coaches, business minds, and thought leaders to help you build excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. We hope this show provides you with tremendous value. And if you find the show impactful, please share with a friend and on social media, as well as subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. Thanks, now let's get to the show and start building excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. Bill Blankenship is one of the most successful and respected high school and college football coaches in the country. As a head coach at the University of Tulsa, his teams won the Liberty Bowl and a Conference USA Championship. As a high school coach, he has had tremendous success. He is currently the head football coach at Owasso High School, where his teams have won two 6A state championships and recently played for the state championship this past season. Prior to Owasso, he was the head coach at Fateville High School, where in his only season, they won the 7A state championship. At Union High School in Tulsa, Oklahoma, he went 154-26 and 26 in 14 years. During those 14 years, Union qualified for the playoffs every year, reached the quarterfinals 10 times, won 8 consecutive district championships, and played in the state championship 7 times, and won 3 6A state titles. The amount of success with state championship appearances and titles are endless, but what I love is what Coach Blankenship shares on the show about setbacks, his own cancer battle, failure and success, how to build great teams, relationships, his family, faith, and much more. This is a master class from a true Hall of Fame coach, so be sure to take notes and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. Today I have a special guest, Coach Bill Blankenship. Coach Blankenship, thanks for being here. Hey, glad to be with you, Bailey. This is fun. Yeah, well, if you wouldn't mind, give our listeners a little bit of background on yourself and growing up and what life was like for you. Oh, Bailey, I was a a coach's kid back when... uh, Coaches did everything. My dad was, a, I like to say, the coach there in the town of Spiral where we grew up. He was a head football coach, uh, boys and girls basketball, coach baseball in the summer. I was the middle son of three boys. My mom was a high school English teacher. Uh, she had been an athlete, too. So we kind of grew up with ball. I mean, if it could be kicked or thrown or, or shot, you know, we were going to do it. And then mom was the, was the balancing act to make sure that we were learning something besides ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was a pretty competitive environment growing up. Oh, absolutely. Especially as the middle son, you know, you had an older brother, seven years older. So he was always big brother. You know, I didn't really compete with him, uh, but I had a little brother that was three and a half years younger. And of course he thought he was as big as me. So I was constantly trying to, to compete with him. And, yeah. uh, but more than that, just being around my dad, I guess, you know, getting to go to the gym, getting to go to the field, uh, competition was just what we were about. And so you learned at an early age to, to try to hold your own and get out there with the big kids and, you know, try not to get kicked out of the game. Yeah. Well, I think it's always interesting talking to people that grew up around, uh, maybe, maybe their dad was a coach or an athletic director. You get to be around a lot of high school kids, maybe college kids at a young age. So you get to see the environment that kind of dictates hard work competition. You see that right. at a young age. So it kind of uh, I don't know if it's innately instilled, but you're around it. So it, by osmosis, you start to really understand like, okay, this is what it takes. It, it becomes the norm for your life. I mean, it's just what uh, all the people that you're around are being a part of. And you see some that are stretching it and maybe becoming a little more than, than the norm and how, uh, what it takes for them to get there. And you just file all that away. You know, like I said, I don't think we consciously think about it. But, you know, I was talking to my wife the other day and we laugh about, you know, being a, a seven, eight, nine year old kid. And there were kids, there were young men on the team that maybe weren't the ideal people for me to be modeling after. But for the weirdest reasons, a young man goes, I want to be like that. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and so I watched that guy and, you know, carried myself like him. And um, so that's just part of being around, I think, all of these different athletes um, that my dad got to coach. Yeah. And it also goes into what you described, like business and having mentors and people that are a little bit ahead of Absolutely. you to model after. So I love that. Well, you talked a little bit about your parents. Did they have a pretty profound imp impact upon you at a young age? And, and kind of what are the things that you take away from them? Yeah, very blessed. Um, you know, it, it's it's fascinating to me because I grew up thinking that everybody had a great family like like mine. And I mean, I, I, mom and dad fussed at me. You know, I got my spankings. I, I got in trouble. That's not what I'm, I'm not trying to say. It was perfect <laughs> by any stretch. But I had a mom and dad that loved me. And they told me consistently, you know, we were like the, the Waltons before you'd go to bed. It was like, good night, mom. I love you. Good night, son. I love you. Good night, dad. I love you. I mean, it was always this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I was probably a young adult before I, I learned that that was actually a learned behavior by my dad. It was came natural in my mom's family. My dad didn't have uh, that kind of relationship and they certainly didn't express it that way. And so he likes to tell the story about getting to know my mom and her brothers were who were these big hulking guys that would hug each other and say, I love you. And he was just blown away from that because that was not uh, his world. And so I grew up that way, never realizing that there was another way. I mean, I just thought, yeah, I had loving parents and that's just what people do. And then later get married. And, and uh, as I'm, as I'm actually engaged to my wife, began to my future wife, began to understand that, she grew up that way too. She didn't have parents that verbalized that she was loved. She had a hard time verbalizing that back. And I took it a little personal for a while. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't quite so bad. Uh, anyway, it's just, I had a great family. I had, uh, my dad was committed to excellence. I mean, he was a math teacher. Uh, he would teach math during the day take off, take his t-shirt and shorts and switch into, you know, athletic gear before school and after school. Uh, my mom was just passionate as an English teacher. And so she raised us to have an appreciation for, you know, all things literature, you know, being able to diagram a sentence, you know, those kind of things are just ridiculous, but yet I'm so thankful that she pushed me uh, to actually have, an understanding and an education and to do well in school because of the doors that would eventually open up for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. sounds like you had some great uh, role models, not and, just. And Bailey, you didn't go here yet, but they were really committed to keep us in church. I didn't know him, but, mm. um, and again, you know, we were old school. I mean, this was back in the day where if it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, my folks and I were going to be there. I missed out on all things, you know, Sunday night Disney and, you know, there were all kinds of shows that I missed out on growing up, I would say, but uh, my folks never seemed to be too concerned about that. Yeah. So was that something maybe when you got into later high school, you started to realize, okay, not all families are like this? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and my folks were, you know, we were very, uh, oh, I don't know what you would call it today, but, you know, pretty strict Southern Baptist, you know, this is the way you do it. Uh, small town America down in Spiral where I grew up, we were at the first Baptist church and I didn't know it was Baptist. I didn't know it was Southern Baptist. I didn't know any of that. I just knew that, you know, the things that uh, were expected in my family. Um, it, it was, you know, my dad had made it clear that, you know, there were certain standards that, and the way they put it, it was, it was what was expected of the Blankenships. I mean, this is what it takes to be a Blankenship. You do that, you know, you know I'm, that's, that does not represent us, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I didn't, I didn't drink and carry on and, and do all kinds of stuff when I was in high school because, you know, and I tell people it wasn't a real spiritual deal. It was, my dad was a tough guy and I was convinced he'd kill me if we did. So <laughs> I just wasn't, I just wasn't going to go down that path and you know, and then later on, I laugh about it. And there, there is some truth to this. My dad lived to be in the, in the mid eighties. And so I was a grown adult and still, you know, would never want him to know that I ever had a drink of alcohol or anything because I, I still think he would have killed me. Uh, okay. That's awesome. I love that. 
well you had a couple couple siblings and so were they going and playing sports and that kind of continued for you wanting to be able to play at the next level absolutely my my big brother um rex was a quarterback and uh, uh, really a great basketball player as well. Um, and he got recruited to play uh, and actually had, had originally signed to go to the University of Houston uh, and was on track there and got admitted to Harvard. Uh, there was a family friend that had Harvard, you know, grad. And so they had encouraged Rex to, to apply, never dreaming that that would happen. He gets into Harvard and my mom and dad have to rethink this whole thing about, you know, can they handle that? And so uh, in the early six or in the late sixties, my, my brother went off to Harvard where he uh, got his degree in engineering, but played quarterback there um, and kind of changed the dynamics of our family because of big brother being on the East coast. And this was an era, you know, you didn't just up and, and fly back and forth and, uh, so we'd see him about twice a year and then, mm-hmm. then in the summer. And so that changed a lot about what was going on in my life growing up because he was my hero. Uh, but now I'm having to do it. My dad gets out of coaching before I get in high school and becomes the high school principal. Uh, so I'm playing for other men uh, that are being an influence in my life. But I have a dream to you know, be able to go be like my brother and play in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, I was able to do that. I eventually got the, a scholarship at the University of Tulsa, uh, got to play for F.A. Dry and John Cooper as my head coach. And um, then my little brother did the same. Uh, and I think there's a lot of that that when you talk about, you, you are able to emulate and model and somebody sets the, the, the bar and you think, well, that's achievable now. And so mom and dad had made it, you know, college wasn't going to be optional. I mean, we were going to figure out a way to go to college. Um, but they had kind of dangled a carrot in front of us. And uh, that if you can get your school paid for either academically or athletically anyway, that we'd help you buy a car. And so that was a motivation for me to think that, uh, you know, I might get a car out of this deal. And sure enough, uh, because I got my scholarship, they helped me buy a car. And, you know, I'll never forget that either. Yeah. So I guess it sounds like high standards and and goals. Have they always been important to you? Yes, but I don't know if I ever knew that's what they were. I just, Mm -hmm. it was just the culture that I grew up in. And when I say culture, the family expectations, Um, like I said, mom and dad never said, you know, you're going to go to college. It was just, you're going to go to college. That was just what we do. And so I think that was, um, I, I think back there were, moments that I would get the, you know, Blankenships are better than that, you know, that we're going to do more than that, you know, or I'd bring a grade home and, uh, you know, that's not, that's not what we're about. You know, it's always the family and who we are. Uh, that was just the pride they developed in our, in, in, I guess our family. Sure. Yeah. And I really, I really, uh, think that's a great story of having that culture in the family. Yeah. Now, you're a pretty good basketball player, and I think I heard that you really like basketball, and you turned down Coach Wooden at UCLA to go to play football at TU. Well, that would be a good story if it okay. was true, but uh, <laughs> okay. I did love basketball, and uh, always thought that basketball was uh, um, easier to practice. You know, you, you didn't have to go out in the heat, or you didn't have to go out in the cold. You could always go to the gym and shoot. Uh, I'll go back to talking about my dad a little bit. One of the great things about having a dad that was a coach and eventually the principal and superintendent was that he had keys to the gym. And so you could always go to the gym. You could always find a game, especially on the weekend. We'd have pickup games all the time uh, in that small town and uh, got where I loved to play. Um, I was on a, a one really not so good team my sophomore year, had a, a amazing moment where shot on the wrong goal and <laughs> I would ever survive that and then eventually become a senior and and we're one uh I think one basket away from the state tournament we get beat in the area finals um and for a small town that's it's way different today there's it's a lot more I would say watered down but that was a big deal for us to win district and win regionals and get to the finals of area mm-hmm. absolutely so you're playing multiple sports but yes, you ultimately sir. went to TU to play football. How did Correct. the recruiting process happen for you, and how did you wind up at TU? 
Well, I was blessed in that I was a big guy. I was a quarterback of a very, um, this was in the 70s. Uh, Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma was running the wishbone. Uh, that was the popular thing. And so a lot of high schools were doing the same. We did, we did as well. So I was a wishbone quarterback that was 6'3", 190 pounds and not very fast. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but I could read the option. I could do the things I was supposed to do. And I just kind of stayed involved um, in the game. I had, I'm not sure why or how, but I also played line. Let me, I'm changing subjects on you, but I played linebacker as well. And it seemed like I was getting a little more attention as a linebacker than I was as a quarterback. Uh, because again, 6'3", 190, uh, we, were ha we had a really good team. I had a, a lot of teammates that were being recruited. If you go back to the wishbone, the two halfbacks both went to the University of Oklahoma. They were seniors when I was a junior. The fullback went to NEO and then went to University of Tulsa. So all three backs were Division I guys, and I played there. My senior year, the halfback that took your place wound up at Oklahoma State. And so I got an opportunity to, I was actually being recruited to OU as a linebacker, but the University of Tulsa came in and began recruiting me as a quarterback. And uh, they appealed to my ego and appealed to my, you know, desire to want to be something uh, on the offensive side of the ball. And so I wound up actually saying no to uh, Barry Switzer and which I don't think I was a high recruit because he kind of let me go pretty easy uh, and then said yes to the University of Tulsa and never looked back it was one of the greatest uh, things in my life because of the people that began to intersect my life during my uh, career at the University of Tulsa. Mm -hmm. And talk about that you know the people that were there to you and, and how they impacted you. You know uh, Bailey I, I that changed how I pray for my grandkids and my kids. And I'm going to try to tie this together for you. Um, I had a great mom and dad. I already told you that they actually had raised us in a Christian home. They actually, I don't know what they could have done to be much better, to have much better prepared me for, you know, going out in the world and going to college. But I do know that once I left home and went to college, now the decisions became, became mine. I wasn't going to go to church because mom and dad were getting me out of bed. I wasn't going to go to the Bible study or FCA or any of that because they were. I began to have to choose those things for my life. Well, very quickly, people came into my life that we intersected, that I had commonality with. Um, teammates at the University of Tulsa, Dave Rader is one of them that a lot of people around here would know. Dave Rader and I are in the same recruiting class. We became friends day one uh, on, on our, our visits and then day one. Um, the summer before I showed up at TU, I get a letter in the mail uh, from a guy named Steve Largent and Jeb Blunt. Jeb was the starting quarterback. Steve was the star receiver. And they talked about this thing called FCA, this meeting, this group that would meet in the dorm on certain nights. And I didn't know what that was about. But I did know that Steve Largent and Jeb Blunt were doing it, and those were guys I wanted to be like. Hmm. And so I showed up, and I began to find other young men that uh, were much more mature than me uh, that were kind of combining their spiritual life and their real life. And I had not done that before. To me, going to church was something I did, and then I would go to school. And reading the Bible was something I did on Sunday or, or at youth group, but I never did much, you know, on my own. And now for the first time, I'm seeing people that are like taking those things and beginning to walk it out in a way that was just real life. And I was motivated by that to, to explore it more. And so that, you know, those people that came into my life and then, um, men that, that worked on campus ministries at the University of Tulsa that I've developed friendships with and coaches that began to invest in my life. And I, I just go person after person after person that I believe God sent across my path that began to take the foundation that my mom and dad had helped me with and pour into this guy to help me to figure it out um, you know, who I wanted to be and, and how I wanted to serve the Lord. 
And uh, I'm so thankful for that. So now um, that's really my passionate prayer for my kids and grandkids is that God would send people across their path, send other men, other women, other friends uh, that would love the Lord and lead them into, um, you know, a motivated lifestyle uh, to learn and to grow. Yeah, that's a great story. And one thing I think about when you talk about people, you've had great people in your life up to this point that we've gotten so far. And I always think it's really interesting because there's one of two ways you can go. There's, there's gravitating towards people that kind of have similar standards and similar faith and backgrounds. And obviously that was the way you gravitated towards those people because they were people that you kind of wanted to be like, what would you say? I mean, cause you've gotten to coach a lot of different people as well. What, what is it like where it takes a different turn where maybe you gravitate towards the wrong crowd and yeah. why, why would you say that is? Well, first of all, let me go back to, in my own experience, Bailey, um, I believe it was because those were the first people that came across my path when I got on campus. Those were the first ones that initiated friendship with me. They were uh, bold. And then I found the commonality. And then I was motivated to want to stay close to my roots, so forth. Now, that doesn't always happen, but we use that later on as older players we made that a strategy with our with our own team is that we would divide the leadership of our of our team uh, myself and dave and some others uh, committed to we were going to go see every new kid on our team in those first two days those first 48 hours and try to initiate some kind of friendship relationship or at least offer that to them in hopes that we would find people like ourselves that were looking for uh, somebody to, to fall in with. Um, I do think it's easy. Um, we all have a need for, for friendship. We all have a need for acceptance, for being uh, somebody to, to see us. And I think if, if you know the right guys don't, the others will. And so you find a way to fit somewhere. Hardly ever will young men just go sit in their room and not interact with anybody and just kind of wait for that to happen. We're going to go somewhere with somebody. And so uh, I do think we can get caught up in, in the path or the stream. You know, we're all getting washed down that way. And it's a whole lot easier to swim this way because a whole bunch of others are going that way. Mm. And so we have to I think find people to intersect us, to remind us that there is another direction. There is another thing that actually we're, we have a chance to be better than that. And that, um, you know, it's not a, uh, when I say better, I hope you know that I'm talking about better yourself, not that you're better than that person. Sure. Uh, that there is a better version of me that uh, God wants us to find. Absolutely. And I love, I love what you just shared there because it's intentional leadership, whether you guys knew that or not at the time, but it was also modeled before you. And so, Correct. you know, I love talking about legacy, not because legacy from the perspective of me, like what I'm doing, but when you do certain things, the people below that were underclassmen for you all, they continue that, you know, that's, it's a continuous thing because of something that's modeled in front of you. And then people continue to model afterwards. So I, I love that story. And it's, it's powerful because that is how you develop a great culture. You develop a good atmosphere within the team or business or whatever it is. And I think that's a, a great perspective. So I don't know if you guys had the foresight to be that intentional. Well, but. even with, even in coaching today, what I would tell you is that's when you know it's working. What we're looking to do coaching football is when the other players are coaching players and they're teaching them the way we do it. This is what we do. Then it's way different than when the head coach is going, you must do this. You know, this is what we have to do. And then it's and the next level is when they're coaching people at their position that have the opportunity to surpass them. Mm. And when you get that, you found the magic of team 
And those people can hardly ever be stopped because you got people confident enough to try to train people below them to replace them at some point or to surpass them at some point. And you cheer them on because that's what we do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, after college, you wound up not getting directly into coaching. And how did that come about? And then talk a little bit about how you got into coaching. Well, first of all, my mom and dad, I go back to them a lot, but they were lifelong educators and uh, education has never paid very well in, uh, in anywhere, but even, especially in the state of Oklahoma, they always said, we want more for you. We want you to, you know, be a professional, do something. Uh, mom and dad were big on, you know, you ought to be a doctor or a lawyer or something, you know, again, very professional. Uh, I did start off in pre-med at the University of Tulsa, and I tell people I was passionate about it until I got my grades the first semester, and <laughs> I decided I didn't want to be a doctor. <laughs> you can understand that, uh, but I did love the sciences. I did all that. Uh, I thought I would go to work uh, as an environmental biologist and work out, and I had all this vision of what I would turn out to be, um, and none of that was really what happened. Um, I pursued football, uh, and that was going to take me to a certain point, but then uh, professional football was not in my, uh, in my future. And so what's, what's next? Well, before I graduated, I had become, I had been being mentored by a gentleman that worked for the Fellowship Christian Athletes, FCA. And you talk about modeling, you know, what mentoring is about. I, I didn't know that's what he was doing with me but it was just natural. You know, Steve said, Hey, why don't you go with me? I'm going to go speak to this group. So I'd go with him. Then I'd go with him the next time. And then the next time he goes, Hey, when we go over there, why don't you tell them a little bit about what's going on in your life? Okay. So I did. And then maybe four or five other times after that, he's like, Hey, Hey, tonight I'm going to pick you up. Why don't you just tell the whole thing? You know, why don't you? And so little by little, he was giving me a platform showing me how to uh, take what what I had been blessed with and share with other young people and began to model that for me. And, and then I know I was, it was a semester, uh, maybe I was starting my last semester and he said, hey, I want you to think about something. I've talked to our, our director and, um, you know, we'd like you to consider working for FCA when you get out of school. And I'm like, really, what does that look like? And back then, uh, FCA is way different than it was now. They kind of looked at it and challenged us that kind of like going to Peace Corps. I mean, why don't you give us two years? Um, you know, we're not, you're not going to make much money, but we'll make sure you're taken care of. And you just go to, you know, help us with schools in this half of the state. And I don't know, I began to really deal with that a little bit. And it just seemed to allow me to hang on to the things that um, I thought were God had used me in athletics and be able to share my faith. And these two things kind of came together. And so I worked for FCA and thought I was going to give them two years. It turned into three. Uh, and the, one of the gentlemen, John O'Dell that I came in with just recently retired from FCA. So he actually became a lifer. We didn't intend to, um, but I've been doing it for three years and had a call from a, a, a local attorney in town that used to be a teammate of mine. He was a little bit older than me. And he said to me, have you ever thought about coaching? And I said, yeah, I really had. I'd always kind of liked the idea of coaching, but I'd never got taken it serious because of kind of the influence that my mom and dad had said. But I did believe that the men that I'd had as coaches had poured into me and I loved the, man, the, the game. And I loved the chess match and I loved the motivation and the teaching. And, and I thought I might want to do that someday. And uh, he said, well, I've got a situation for you that I think you might be interested in uh, because I was very egotistical. And I, again, I hate saying it that way, but I really, what I was a quarterback and quarterbacks generally feel pretty good about themselves and I was a pretty good quarterback. And so I didn't think that I should have to start coaching at, you know, seventh grade, you know, or eight. I, th- I kind of thought they should just anoint me as king and 
I should be the king of coaching and all that because I knew all this football. Uh, it doesn't really work that way. But <laughs> I called and he said, have I got a deal for you, though? He said, we've got a position here at Eastwood Christian School. Eastwood Baptist, uh, uh, Baptist Church had a high school. And I didn't know the background at the time, but they'd gone through a little bit of a, a split and a group that had been there had gone over and started Metro Christian and they needed a football coach. And he asked me if I would consider coming and being their head football coach. I'm like, man, I didn't know he'd be that smart to ask me to be the head coach. <laughs> I think looking back on it, I'm pretty sure they were looking for the FCA guy, the youth director, the, you know, somebody to just kind of do that. Um, but I, I was completely into it and went and take, took my first job as a football coach and was the head coach of a local, very small high school. Um, found out pretty quick. I love coaching, but I wasn't very good at it. And uh, we won two games the first year, though. And I, I tell people that I don't know. I, I really don't know who we could have beaten because we weren't very good. <laughs> and so I was absolutely devoted that if you're going to do this, you've got to improve year to year. And so the next year I go into it and I really, I, and the one thing I will tell you in year two that it became clear to me is that this is what I believed I was made to do. Mm. I believed I was given the tools to be a coach. I absolutely loved it. And two things happened. One, we weren't much better. Uh, we did win three games. I tell people because we did get a forfeit and I <laughs> forfeit still today on my resume because I don't want to go down you know I had two wins and now three wins and this is the the irony of life about the time you think you got it figured out the curveballs they close the school down so here I am new head coach second year this is what I'm made to do I'm just really serving and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do I'm pouring into these now I don't have a job school just disappears. Yeah. So I got to go hit the bricks and figure out a place to, to get on. And um, little by little, and I won't bore you with all that, but I wind up taking a job as an assistant coach at Sepulpa High School for a new head coach that I'd never met. Uh, he interviewed me and we seemed to hit it on a guy named Steve Spavital. And I only say that because anybody that knows our story, Spav and I wound up only coaching together for about 22 years. And uh, he's recently retired over in Broken Arrow. But I went to work for SPAF for a year at Sepulpa and uh, loved it. But we struggled. Wasn't a, a great, uh, great season from wins. And I keeping up down in Spiro where I grew up, the head coach resigns. And I'm thinking, you know, I might want to go back home and, and get that job. And because I am the king of coaching, I mean, I am <laughs> – you know, I, I have been a college quarterback, so I know a lot about this stuff. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so anyway, I call the superintendent up and I'm like, I think you ought, you know, maybe I should be your next head coach. And he's like, oh, I appreciate, I'm glad you're excited about this. I think you're going to be a good coach. Um, you know, I think you need more seasoning, he said. I think that, I don't know what seasoning, that experience. I said, I said, I really think I'd be the guy for the job. I really think this is exactly uh, the job that I should get. And he goes, you know, we'd really love to get you back, but we think you need to get some more experience. I said, Dad, I really <laughs> want the job. My dad had become the superintendent. I actually do talk my dad into hiring me. Thank you that we weren't in the era of social media. Thank you that we didn't have Twitter pages and all that stuff. Cause I'm sure my dad got roasted anyway for hiring me. I had no idea. I thought this was the greatest thing I'd ever happened. You know, he just smart and did all this. And fortunately for him, the limb that he went out on for me, um, we were actually pretty good. And we actually took Spyro to a state championship. We didn't win it but we got them there and uh, had great run over four years. And that kind of kicked off my journey that eventually took me to Edmond and then union and then uh, into the college era and back around in a big circle. But 
Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that story about your dad. I don't know if you made a call to your mom to kind of get the final push. right Well, there. <laughs> she was probably goading him a little bit to get, <laughs> I, I did have our first grandchild or, or their first grandchild already. And so there was probably good reasons for us to bring those kids back. So. Mm, yes. You know, and as you talked about, you know, not backtracking too much, but going on FCA, uh, you were the one thing I think about is you were willing to take those steps. You're willing to speak when you're asked to speak. And so, uh, each time we're given opportunities, just saying yes, sometimes, sometimes saying no, but sometimes saying yes and being open, I think is really key. And you were open to working at FCA, then you're open to taking that new job. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a pretty cool story is once you get into the coaching sphere, you know, deep down or whatever, that this is what you want to be doing, because mm -hmm. it, it kind of fits your God given makeup in a sense. And so I think that's a pretty cool yeah. story is how that came about. And then obviously, things fall into place. But the one thing that when you talk about these things with your story is people, and I'm sure that continues all throughout coaching to this very day, but the people that are around you, uh, maybe the favor that God's given you in some situations to be able to have success, and you've had tremendous success at, at a lot of the places you've been. What was it like to be a head coach for the first time in Spyro? And then how did you evolve over time as a head coach? Because obviously, you talked about being at Edmond, being at Union, tremendous success going to TU and college. And I want to definitely talk about that jump to college too, but talk a little bit about being a head coach. Well, um, I was in my young, in my uh, low thirties, whatever, however you say it, I was in my thirties when I got the job at Spyro, uh, very young uh, as a head coach. I thought I was a grown man, uh, felt like a grown man until I went back in that high school and the same English teacher that had me in class called me Billy Don. And the, you know, the high school principal at the time had been a assistant principal at the time. And they called me Billy Don. And all, you know, I'm like, well, I'm coach. You know? <laughs> and I had to get used to going back in time to kind of proving myself again. And and they didn't mean it in any kind of negative way, but they still saw me as that high school kid that came up. And so having to establish uh, myself as a leader uh, was challenging. Uh, but I, again, had good people around me. Um, I began to just lean on the things that the way I had been trained and the pe best people, you know, people like to talk about best practices well, sometimes we get that shared with us and sometimes we just learn it because we actually learn some bad practices along the way that just don't work. Um, I like to tell people, and it's absolutely a truth, is that I have had and had a file called How to Lose Football Games. And you insert into that file the things that you know that you did wrong or that you really don't want to do again uh, because I hurt the opportunity for my team to be successful. Um, and by owning that, I think what that does is begins to teach you, okay, well, don't make that mistake again. So do it this way. And before anybody else teaches you, you learn best practices that a lot of businesses like to refer to of how to do these things successfully. Uh, I am continuing now. I mean, I coached 39 years and I'm still going to try to learn how to do it better, how to communicate things in a little better way. Um, coaching is just teaching. And if I can find a, a cleaner, simpler version of how to get someone to move from A to B and not confuse them, then I want to have that opportunity to do it. So anyway, I'm chasing that rabbit. Spiral was really good for me. It was good because I had the, I had the home court advantage. Um, every Sunday would be over at my mom and dad's house. My dad was a superintendent for my first uh, two years. First, yeah, first two years. Um, he actually called me to the office one day and I went over and he gave me a sheet of paper and it had had a little number on it, like a hundred and 
$40 or something like that. And I'm like, what are you saying? He goes, well, the state has passed an early retirement incentive. And if I don't retire, I'm actually only making $140 a month if I come to work every, every day. And I'm like, so what are you telling me? He said, you're on your own. I said, I'm retiring. <laughs> and my dad left, but he was still there to support. Um, but we grew up with our, our grand, our, our kids were very young, but they were got to be with mom and dad. Um, we got to be at, at a great place. We got to have some success and, uh, things went really well. I was also diagnosed with cancer while I was in Spyro and went through a, a whole year of, uh, chemotherapy and a couple of, uh, small surgeries and, had to deal with all of that, but the perfect time to do it was while I was there. Mm. And I just am so thankful that, that we had that time while we were in Spyro and, uh, later had an opportunity to go to Edmond. Um, amazing story that it was, but, uh, we left Spyro, a little class two, a, to go to the biggest school in the state of Oklahoma and didn't know how that would work and if we were anywhere close to being ready for that but we took it and went mm -hmm. and and how did you get to union how did that come about well everything is you go back to it's all about people in fact the way i got to edmund was because of the superintendent that i'd worked for at sepulpa of all things and there had been a, a situation and i didn't want to uh honor it but the superintendent didn't want me to leave early. And I just remembered one of the things my dad used to always teach me was, you know, don't leave a place, you know, don't burn a bridge. Don't do anything. We always talk about leave it better than you found it. And so even though we didn't think he was right, I honored the superintendent and did what he asked me to do and kind of bit, bit my tongue and left and never thought about it again. Four years later, he's the superintendent at Edmond. I called, to, to, I didn't even know he was there, but I called to apply for the job and they put me through to him. And he said, I was hoping you'd call. And I think God had laid the foundation for uh, favor with him and got the job at Edmond, which now allowed me to be at the biggest school in the state. And so when Union was looking for somebody, they had done it two years prior and I was at Spiral. I couldn't even get a sniff because I was at this little 2A school. Now I'm at the big school and now I'm a, a big draw for them, not because I'm a different person, but because where I was and the platform I had. Mm -hmm. And so I was excited to get to come back to, to Union and to, uh, or not back, but back to Tulsa and be the coach at Union and just pure favor. I mean, yeah. God's just blessed me incredibly with that. Absolutely. But also too, just what you talked about, your dad teaching you those lessons, leave it better than you found it. Don't burn any bridges. Yeah. Uh, you were at Sepulpa. Was it one year? Is that correct? One year. Uh -huh. One year. So that one year you were working and I'm sure as you were doing, I wasn't there, but I'm sure when you were there, you were working extremely hard, diligent, you're treating people the right way. And that enabled that person to watch and see well, that. Let me add something to that because okay. sometimes you have to go work a job you don't really understand. And so what I mean, I've been a head coach. Remember that? I went to be an assistant coach and I worked for Steve whose dad had been an NFL coach and had been all around area. Steve had grown up in real coaching. And the thing I learned working for Steve Spavital was how to coach. I had just been doing what I thought to do. Now I went and worked for a, a man that was, I think a professional coach and he knew how to coach and how to hold things accountable and how to build systems and I became a completely different guy getting to work for Steve, who then I think prepared me for all of these other opportunities that would come later on. Yeah, what a great, what a great story. So obviously you get to Union and for people that may not know, you had tremendous success at Union. Um, but one thing, as you have told your story before, it wasn't overnight success, yeah. but you made it to championship after championship after championship yeah. and didn't get that little over the hump there for right. a quick sec. Obviously you did, right. but talk a little bit about that perspective because okay. everyone can see all the state championships and think it was, you just walked into the situation you had, you just put your hand out and all of a sudden it was great, but right. there was challenges that you had to face there. 
Absolutely. I do roll my eyes a little bit when, and I enjoy when people brag on me. I mean, I've got enough human side of that. You know, they'll talk about the championship coach, the guy that did this, the, you know, the, he wins championships all the time. And I'm like, wow, you know, where were you? Uh, you know, I talked about going, when we were in Spyro, we went to the state championship uh, and got beat, finished as runner up, uh, wind up at Union. And in 1994, went to the state championship and got beat. We got back there in 98. We were undefeated in 98, got back and got beat. Went back in 99, we're beaten again. Went back in 2000 and we're beaten again. So we'd been to the state championship game like five times and couldn't get a win. And I didn't know if we would ever get a win. It just felt that, I mean, I was just so frustrated with all that. And eventually in 2002, we broke through and got a win. And then uh, we followed up uh, in, we didn't win in 03, but we won again in 04 and 05. And so we won three out of the last four uh, that I was at, at Union. And so the, again, I think the, the lesson is the journey matters, how you continue to get off the mat and go again. Um, it's not, you know, I think the hardest thing to do is to get back to the, to the championship, to the opportunity for it when you didn't get it last time, because you didn't get the uh, feedback that most people get. And I just think it's hard to fail and to get back again and to get back again. But that's what I love about, I think, the warrior heart of some athletes is that you can develop that, get, you know, deal with a little bit of temporary failure uh, and continue to get back. Well, we got there in 02, and then it's like everything flipped. And now all of a sudden you figure out how to win. And you're not doing anything different, but your kids believe and you believe. And now all of a sudden that begins to, to feed itself. And uh, that's when I uh, kind of threw, a, I will say I, Angie and I, my wife and I began to pray about, you know, is this it for us? Um, we didn't know if there was, I, I was, I think, 51 or two at the time. And I didn't think I was going to stay at Union for another 10 years and retire, you know, that didn't seem to match what I wanted to do. And so we just began to try to, to read in the word and just pray and, you know, what's next for us. And so at the end of the old five year, I, I actually resigned and without a job, didn't know what we were going to do for sure, but I knew that it was time to leave. And so we said goodbye to comfort and confident and, uh, you know, just consistency and, kind of stepped out in faith and probably the biggest thing Angie and I've done in our life. And uh, it took a while, but uh, God delivered in a very big way, um, even more than we even imagined. Yeah. And I definitely want to press into this a little bit because yeah. you're stepping away from something you helped establish to be a powerhouse school state championship after state championship. Yeah. And you step away because you feel led to step away in faith and trust. What did that look like? internally because that is that's a challenging thing for for anyone yeah. to do to step away from something that's comfortable to step into faith and step into something that is unknown the process was was good the process was um healthy and built a lot of confidence in us we just decided the two of us that uh she was on the same page with me she actually initiated it uh knowing where my heart was and so we just began to to pray and to, to deal with some people we trusted. Um, and we found scripture that backed up. Um, we were just reading through the old, I mean, we weren't looking for anything, reading through the Old Testament. And the very week we committed to, uh, to start praying about this was, um, I think it's Deuteronomy. And we're just at the top and it says, uh, uh, okay, you've been on this mountain too long. It's time to break camp in advance. And I'm like, what? Was that because I am not one that goes and takes scripture out and says, well, that's what this means. And you know, I'm going to take this to mean this, but I'm like, it was like affirmation. And then we started going down this other path affirmation. And, and I, we have never been more confident that we're supposed to leave, mm -hmm. but that didn't make it any easier. 
because after we were gone and the jobs didn't come immediately, the questions come, you know, and my, my, one of my best friends, he would tease me. He was not serious, but he's like, brother, are you sure you just didn't have bad fish, you know, and <laughs> the next morning and, you know, maybe you got that wrong. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. And I would get, I had other job offers that we knew were not the right job. And I would go home and, and one day after uh, turning down uh, a local high school that had asked me to come there, I knew that wasn't what we were leaving for. Um, Angie was like, why are you so, you know, why are you so down? Why are you so frustrated? And I'm like, well, you know, there's an old joke. It's an old tale about the, the guy that was praying for salvation. And, you know, he finally drowns and he gets up there and, and St. Peter says, you know, he, he's mad at St. Peter. And he's like, you know, why did you let me drown? And St. Peter said, well, we sent a rowboat and a motorboat and a helicopter, you know, and <laughs> you wouldn't take any of those. And I'm like, I'm telling Angie, I'm like, my problem is I'm afraid that was the helicopter. <laughs> and she's like, no, you know, that's not what, that's nothing like where we thought we were going. And we didn't know what it was, but we knew kind of, we know it when we saw it. And there was some, some idea it might be college coaching, but it wasn't like that was the only thing we were open to. Um, but I, it was very difficult at times. And I tell people now, faith is like, it's so much easier when you look behind you and you see the path and how clear it was. But when you're trudging ahead in faith, the only reason it makes sense is because of what was behind you, not because you can see it in front. And so we went through some hard times of trying to figure it out. Uh, but when I look back, it may be some of the best times of our life. Mm. And ultimately you landed at university of Tulsa. After yeah. You went to college. Yeah. At, after I had every conceivable way that I could manipulate the system, you know, I knew that this guy, the job was going to come open. And so I'm working this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. And the guy that got the job was a guy that had already turned me down for a job. And so I'm like, there's a Todd Graham is getting this job. I don't, this, this is unbelievable. I just can't believe this. I go to pick up some eggs and bacon at Walmart one morning before the storm comes and my phone rings. I don't know who it is. And I pick it up and he goes, hey, Bill, this is Todd Graham. I'm like, yeah. He goes, uh, the short version is, would you like to come be my wide receiver coach? And I'm like, you had me at hello. I mean, it was <laughs> kind of deal. And so I go, I there's go, a helicopter. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I go to work with uh, Todd Graham for the next four years and uh, I'm an assistant coach and I'm just, I'm kind of, you know, it was hard. It was great. It was fun. It was horrible. It was everything that jobs can be. Uh, but again, just pre preparation and who would have guessed that uh, the biggest surprise anybody got was he leaves after four years, goes to the University of Pittsburgh, and just little by little, all of the possible folks that are up for the job don't, don't get it, and they name me the head coach uh, at the University of Tulsa four year, five years after I left Union. Hmm. Yeah. And then once you got named the head coach, you're at TU and you guys won the Liberty Bowl. What was that the second yeah. year you were there? Second year. Uh huh. Yeah. Had two great years. Uh, we got to go the first year to the uh, uh, to the Armed Forces Bowl. Mm, right. uh, the next year caught lightning in a bottle. We had a bunch of uh, older guys and uh, played really good. And uh, we're really just a, a few plays away from maybe playing in the what they were calling the BCS Bowl at that time. Yeah and uh, got beat down in Houston, uh, or at SMU, I'm sorry. Uh, we missed a, a Hail Mary, caught it on the one-yard line instead of the, in the end zone, or we'd been in the BCS Bowl. Oh, that's right. Up going to Liberty Bowl, beating Iowa State. Um, 11 wins. It was a big deal for the University of Tulsa. You know, coach on the year, what a great guy. You know, player, you know I get to throw out a ball at Driller Stadium. I, I get to be all that guy. And then we don't win any, much of any, the next two years. And the business of college football catches up to you. And uh, so at, after uh, being the coach of the year in 2012, I'm the guy that gets fired in 2014. 
And uh, it's pretty, pretty devastating uh, to feel like that you're at your dream job and your alma mater and, and uh, the city that you've grown up in for the most part. And you become now, you feel like a failure because uh, you can't get this job done. Yeah. Well, I think that's an interesting point because you had great success and I'm sure a lot of people could look and, and just two seasons, maybe not going the ways you want them to. That's a pretty short lease right there. Yeah. You think that you would have a lot, a lot more. And so I'm sure that was not, I'm sure it was a challenging time for you and going, making decisions. And sure. I want to, I want to dive into that because I wouldn't necessarily define it as a failure, but I think the term and coin of failure is really important to talk about because yeah. Uh, I was just recently at a deal and John Maxwell spoke and he was talking about how failure and success go hand in hand. 100%. And so how, how have you looked at failure? How have you looked at challenges and how have you continued to press forward even in the midst of what you or some people may ever call failure in their life, but what gives you the perspective to just keep on going? Well, a couple of things that, first of all, to, to just dig into why I use that term. I don't feel like I was a failure, but I feel like I was judged as a failure. And what happens if you're not careful is you spend way too much time. And I'm guilty of this. Uh, I think I've grown out of it mostly, but the thing that hurt me the most was not what I did at Tulsa, but it was what I think people said about the guy that was a failure. Does that make sense? Absolutely. When I, when I would get frustrated and my heart would, my heart burn and all that stuff that would come up was because of other people feeling about me. Like I I was concerned about that. Um, There are things I wish I'd have done better. There are things I wish I could have corrected and would have done it if I had another opportunity to do that. But the fastest thing or the best thing that I, that helped me initially was getting a call from one of my um, former head coaches, uh, John Cooper. And as the day or so after I got fired and he said, do you think Bo Schembechler was a good coach? And I said, well, he's sure. Do you think, you know, um, Mac, uh, what's his name was a, let me start naming all of I'm like, yes, yes. He goes, they all got fired. Welcome to the club. And then I had another friend that said, the sooner you can start saying you got fired as opposed to, well, they let me go or no, they didn't let you go. They fired you. That's not an insult. It's just, it's a fact deal with it. And so I think quickly I began to verbalize some of those things and it didn't, it didn't heal me, but I think you have to deal with it in a, in a very, straightforward way. This is the business of football. I don't have to agree with it. I don't have to think it's fair. It doesn't matter, but this is the business of football. And so what happened after that is I get a chance to go work for Justin Fuente for a year. Who's really just doing me a favor, getting me out of Tulsa to come be with him, but I'd coached him, but all of a sudden now I'm getting to see things again, how he's doing it, how, are they doing all these good things at Memphis and later at Virginia Tech and um, just kind of reigniting a fire of there's a better way. There are things you can do. There are, if you did this again, what would you do different? I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought I might be back in college coaching. And a strange path led me to Fayetteville, Arkansas, in the middle of the summer to take over for a guy that had been dismissed. And I was loving it and it was odd and it was strange and it was out of my comfort zone, but I began to get to be the new guy, not the guy that got fired, but the guy, the kind of the next level guy that uh, got to spend time and you get, what would you different? And things went well. And then a year later, a wasp shows up and I get to be the new guy. And I have coaches that come, that played for me that are working with me and like, where did that come from? We were, I mean, this is not the guy I remember. I said, well, it is, but it's not, you know, I, I think you have to come to a point where you're like, if I'm satisfied with the old guy, I'm not going to continue to be a, you know, a 
a good coach in my profession. And so we all have that opportunity, Bailey. I mean, you know, you're going to, you get to a level of success. And I think this is what uh, maybe John Maxwell was talking about. I mean, success and failure, you, you don't continue. If you become a success and that's it, you're going to be a failure there because you have to constantly continue to find a level that grow. You know, one of his books, I think, was called Failing Forward. Yeah. Um, and that's part of what we're all going to fail. I think Swindoll said it this way a long time ago. I committed this to memory, hopefully. But <laughs> being a failure has absolutely nothing to do with how often you fail. Being a failure has everything to do with how you respond when you fail. And so we're going to fail. That doesn't make us a failure. But we have to be able to take failing and find out how to do it better. I called it how to lose football games. Let's figure out how to not lose those and, and do it again. Every area that, of our life, I mean, as, as a husband, as a, as a grandpa, man, I screwed that up. I can do that better. So let's figure out. Let's don't just continue to repeat it. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously you won a state championship in that single season at Fayetteville, and then you go yeah. win state championship at Owasso. So you've had great success coming back from those failures. But one thing too is I think having that perspective of humility to say, mm. I'm always going to learn from these situations, good and bad. Yeah, I think that's been a pattern in your story as well. Real quickly, I want to honor your time to get out of here, but uh, talk a little bit about being a great husband, being a great father, and then also being a great uh, grandpa. Well, uh, that, we might we may not have enough time for that. So yeah. let me just tell you that uh, everything that I am is because I'm married well. Uh, Angie has been the perfect partner for my life. She keeps me humble. She will not let me uh, be bigger than my than I think I am or, or be as big as I think I am. Uh, she laughs at my jokes. We love each other passionately. Um, we're going to be married 45 years this spring. Um, so she's just been a great partner. Um, she is an absolute fabulous grandmother and, uh, my three boys married ahead. Of, I think they followed after me because I think they married up and we've got three awesome, uh, daughter-in-laws who have now blessed us with 13 grandkids and it's like herding cats, <laughs> but I wouldn't change any of it. I, I love getting to pour into them and to um, be able to wrestle and hug and uh, be the goofy grandpa that tells stupid jokes and all those kind of things. Yeah. And I think throughout your story, too, talking about your wife and how she encouraged you and gave you perspective and encouragement, yeah. maybe at times where you're not feeling great, she continued to encourage you. So I think that's fantastic. I do think that's that's our best. The best thing I can tell you about having a partner is they need to be able to fill the gaps. You know, I think I do that for her, but it's amazing. You know, you know, good cop, bad cop, or whatever you want to call it. You know, it's when I'm usually the strong one and I'm needing to fill some things for her, and it's really amazing that when I was struggling, then she would fill that for me. And I think that's what we do as friends for one another, all of us but we need those kind of people around us. Absolutely. Well, the final two questions I have for you, is there a certain piece of best advice you've ever received and what is it? Oh, best advice. Um, I actually would say that <laughs> sounds a little tongue in cheek, but it's okay to punt. Mm. I probably was a guy that would go for it too often, but I think the metaphor works for life. I think there are some times we got to say, you know, we're not going to win that one. It's okay to punt. Mm, I love that. That's awesome. Well, this podcast is called Building Excellence. What does building excellence mean to you? Going one and oh, find a way to win in everything you do in the smallest things, because excellence is a habit. And if you can do the right things enough times, just just when and giving you the best I got today, when and when I go to do the next thing I'm going to do, let's find a way to go one and know, find a way to go one and know. I believe that gets to be a habit. And if you win enough on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays, then Friday nights are not that big a deal.
Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Uh, you know, Coach Blankenship, uh, you've been a mentor to so many people, to the players you've coached, the people you speak to, you've impacted so many people, but also too, to give you credit, because you have stayed true to your design, like when you found out mm -hmm. at a young age, you continue to do that. So I just want to thank, thank you. you for doing that. Um, if someone wanted to kind of follow, you know, your, your program, also maybe follow you, what's the best way of doing that? Well, I am uh, kind of on social media, depending on when I open up my, my iPad. But uh, Coach B Blank is my Twitter handle, uh, Coach B Blank. Um, and then just if you just want to reach out to me, um, I am on Facebook also, but uh, email coachblank at outlook.com. And one word, Coach Blank. Don't get confused. My email is Coach Blank, but my Twitter is Coach B Blank. Okay. Because my, nep my nephew beat me to it on Twitter. So, okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, coach, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Bailey, thanks for having me, man. And good luck with this. And I just hope you just continue on. Hey everyone, it's Bailey Miles. Thanks again so much for tuning in. We hope you found value in the show. And if you enjoyed it, we would really appreciate you sharing the show with a friend, subscribing on Apple or Spotify podcast, writing a quick review or leaving a five-star rating. When you do that, it really helps get the message out and allows more people to hear these stories and help them build excellence in their life, leadership, and legacy. Now, if you have any questions, thoughts, or ideas, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email. It's bailey at baileymiles.com. Follow us on social. We're on all the different social platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Or check out our website at baileymiles.com. Uh, once again, I'd love to hear from you, so definitely do that. And then thanks again for joining me on this journey. And remember, life begins at the end of your comfort zone.